HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more and find the store nearest to you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hey, and welcome to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. On today's episode, James Brissione turns big data into delicious recipes. And while Director of Culinary Research at the Institute of Culinary Education, ICE, Brissione worked with IBM's Watson computer to map out flavor combinations, which challenged the preconcepts of what tastes good together and why. From there, The Flavor Matrix was born. And as a book, it's a guide to pairing ingredients chemically by their aromatic compounds. As a cook, you'll open it up. Well, you'll open up to a world of creativity far past your personal palette of taste memories. And it's true. This is such a tome. And I don't use that word lightly because it is a heavy book as well. But this is such an interesting journey into the known and not unknown. Like, there are synapses here. There are, like, actual compounds here of, of, of chemical research that makes so much sense, but we as humans have decided not to be privy to it. And I kind of want to start by asking, what are your favorite, com- like, flavor combinations outside of the flavor matrix? <laughs> outside. Chocolate and peanut butter. Straight off the bat. I mean, you really can't do better than that i think uh my all-time favorite and what is that from a layman's standpoint why is it so enjoyable um it's delicious <laughs> that would be the simplest way to put it no i think you know you've got it you, you got to work on so many different fronts i mean you've got the salty sweet going on together you've got all those big huge roasted aromas uh you've got you know the kind of the rich flavors happening as well because you've got the a little bit of fat in the chocolate. You got the fat in the peanut. Like it all just works. And actually, also what we're enjoying here, I think, like pizza. I mean, baked wheat, cheese, tomato. Like that is an incredibly powerful combination. 
But as humans, as people, do we have predispositions to these things? Do we know that peanut butter and jelly taste good together because it's been around for hundreds of years? So, I mean, to me, sort of a lot of this anthropology of taste is so fascinating because there are certain things that we're predisposed to, just genetically programmed to, you know, salt. Uh, our body likes that because it is necessary for functioning. We can kind of regulate it. But our tongue also knows when it's too much salt. When you get hit in the face with an ocean, you know, with a wave in the ocean and you get that mouthful of salty water, you start coughing and gagging because your, your tongue is telling you that's too much salt. You know, get it out. But, you know, a certain amount of salt makes you really happy. Sugar immediately triggers things in the brain. It immediately triggers dopamine in the brain. Uh, and your body, you know, says wow, this stuff is awesome. I can use this for energy now. And if a Tyrannosaurus Rex comes around the corner, I know I can run away because I've got sugar right now. Um, I know we didn't live at the same time as Tyrannosaurus Rex, <laughs> and that's the whole deal. Okay, a woolly mammoth, fine. But, um, you know, I mean, you get the idea. So, yes, and, and, and you know, savory meats, umami, whether it's in, you know, cheese or tomatoes or mushrooms, you know, that that's amino acid, boom, your brain is like, okay, protein building blocks, I need this to keep my body going as well. So, you know, a lot of things that are that are really associated with taste, we are absolutely programmed to seek out. Well, salt, sugar, meat, I, I kind of associated that all with spring break in Europe. That's a cola <laughs> boy. So I thought you had the predisposition because of, of, of that location itself. But you know, this you know, idea of what goes good together is something that was challenged when you were working at ICE. Uh, you had this amazing opportunity to work with IBM and the computer Watson, which might be best known for playing chess or, or, or Jeopardy. Or Jeopardy yeah. yeah. So talk to me about how that came to be and how you and this computer collaborated. Well, you know, it was about five years ago, and, and Watson had kind of built into this computer system that they knew could answer any question and, and answer it, you know, easily and interpret the question and, and give the answer, unlike Siri, who could say, uh, here, read this, and the answer you're looking for is probably somewhere within this article. Uh, you well, know, that, which is in the form of a question. Right. <laughs> um, but... You know, the some of the team at IBM there, they wanted to take the next step and say, okay, can this technology help people be more creative and not just answer a question? Uh, so they decided to kind of apply that towards culinary arts. And they came to us at ICE um, with this idea. Uh, I was very skeptical heading into it. I didn't really think that this was going to be something that was going to work or that a computer uh, could tell me something about cooking that I didn't already know. Um, but it sounded like a fun project and a kind of an interesting challenge. So we went for it. Um, and, you know, immediately when we started to see kind of the inner workings and, and how, you know, Watson was making decisions about ingredients and what ingredients could potentially go into a dish, um, I was fascinated. I was immediately hooked and, and like, you know, learning the science behind it um, was, you know, just pulled me in instantly. Well, what is this term cognitive cooking? What does that mean? So, you know, the Watson is a cognitive, is, is what's called cognitive computing, meaning that it actually kind of learns along the way. Um, so that was just, that was kind of the play on, a play on the term of cognitive, cognitive computing. We made it cognitive cooking since, you know, Watson was 
uh, you know, empowering us. And then we, you know, as the chefs, myself and, and Michael Escanes and some of the other chefs at ICE, you know, were then taking uh, what Watson was giving us into the kitchen to go create. And But you say into the kitchen as in the academic kitchen, but you and your wife, you know, cook together all the time, have, have many books out as this duo. So it's applicable at home as well. So how do we as home cooks become cognitive? Um, I, you know, it starts with, with understanding, like, you know, understanding taste and flavor, the difference between the two, how they operate, how, you know, how we experience and experience them. Uh, you know, I mean, I think about it often when, you know, I'm, I'm no wine expert. My wife is, is much, is, is quite uh, proficient in wine, not just enjoying it, but also knowledgeable about it. <laughs> um, but you know, when when you go to a, a wine tasting with someone who really knows knows the wines and can point out specific notes and flavors in the wine, and you know, I never would have I never would have picked up on the blackberry in a wine. But you know, as I sit there and someone tells me, and I'd smell a little bit harder, and I you know, kind of sip a little bit longer. I'm, oh yeah, you know, there it is. I get it. You know, and you, and you start perceiving these things. So, um, you know, it's a big part of it is is educating yourself and, and learning, knowing what to look for, uh, what the, what what you're trying to find in this. Well, I mean, how does taste even work? I know that's a big and broad question, but how are we perceiving these flavors or are those two different things? Uh, I mean, technically, technically there are two things, right? So taste is what happens on the tongue. And really when it comes down to it, your tongue is only reporting really seven things. It's, it's the five basic tastes that we know, sweet, sour, salty, bitter, umami. And then um, fat, there's emerging science that tells us that fat actually is a taste and that there are receptors on your tongue that respond to free fatty acids in foods. Uh, and then spicy, your, you know, your tongue lets you know something's spicy. But outside of that, it all comes from your nose. And it's, it's about these volatile compounds, these aromatic compounds that are in food that make their way out of the food up, you know, whether it's you walk into... You know, a, a bakery, and you immediately get hit with that scent of baked bread. Uh, you know, you're already tasting that bread. You're perceiving the flavor of that bread before it even enters your mouth. But then, when you take a bite of that bread and you start chewing on it, more of these compounds get released, and they start making their way up the back of your throat and into your nose. And it's thousands of individual little molecules that make up the aroma of that bread, and that's what's really informing the flavor. So, I mean, smell precedes all of this. So if you can't smell, you can't taste. Exactly. You know, when, when you take a bite of food, about 80% of, of what you're perceiving is coming from the nose. The nose of things like beer and coffee, you know, that's like, what, hydrocarbons and phenols. Um, yes, I scientific, you know, <laughs> the, the, those terms. But these are things that are, are, are traveling from wherever that beverage or wherever that substance is up into your nose how do they do that um they i mean so by their nature vol they're, they're called volatile compounds so they, they um are kind of freely releasing uh you know and, and breaking free from from where they come from and you know so those are the perfect examples you know that you just talked about beer and coffee um and wine we have these these complex diagrams that show us the aromas that could be present in a beer uh in a cup of coffee in a glass of wine and all of those aromas plus more exist in food, but we never talk about them, or, or we rarely talk about them. We talk about whether something's sweet or sour or savory, 
Um, we don't get into all of these, you know, complex aroma flavor discussions often, um, you know, about food. It's, it's often really kind of taste focused. And that's what we set out to do with the flavor matrix was focusing on flavor. You know, I think one of the more interesting ones, and maybe it's myself trying to will summer to happen, was strawberries. <laughs> because baked bread, butter, and toasted almonds aren't necessarily tasting notes you associate back with that. No, they're not. Um, but so mesofurane uh, is a specific compound that is a, really plays a big role in the aroma of strawberries. You would never identify these smells of, of toasted bread and buttery, uh, you know, basically like, almost like a croissant, right? But if you isolated this one compound that plays a big role in strawberry flavor, it smells just like a croissant. Um, but you don't really kind of, you know, put those two together. We couldn't perceive that on its own, but it's there and we're still responding to it. So it's kind of, you know, underlying. It's not something that we would that we would perceive, but it's there and it starts playing into what goes well with strawberry. I mean, how great is strawberry jam on a piece of toast, right? It's that's part of it. So you're just trying to prove that these things make sense. Exactly. Yeah, and nothing's as absurd. You know, we'll talk about Fat Duck and Heston Blumenthal in a second, but you know, nothing's as as absurd as caviar and what is it? White chocolate? Caviar and white chocolate. You know, that seems like a larf. That seems like, you know, somebody's trying a little too hard, but why does it work? So that is where this whole idea started. Um, you know, it's what's called the flavor pairing theory. And, um, you know, the way I've understood the story, um, I wasn't there, of course, uh, but I know somebody who was, and I haven't had a chance to sit down and talk to him about it yet. Um, but they were just doing some kind of flavor experiments, tasting experiments with sweet and salty ingredients. And they did a, they did a tasting with caviar and white chocolate. And the whole team was just blown away by how great that pairing was, how delicious it was, how well it all worked. Um, they're like, well, what the hell is going on here? How, why, why is this so good? It makes no sense. It should not. Um, so they went to some flavor scientists and said, break this down for us. Explain to us what's happening and why this works, thinking that if, if we start to understand this, then, hey, there's probably a whole lot more we can figure out. And so they got kind of the, the chemical analysis of these two different ingredients and solved you know, this, these really important uh, compounds that they had in common that were present both in caviar and in white chocolate. Um, so you kind of took that, those overlapping flavor compounds, put them on top of a, just an awesome, you know, sweet and salty thing, and um, you had this just incredible taste. And, and that was the beginning of the flavor pairing theory, which was just, you know, 18 years ago. And I mean, that was the precipice of the flavor matrix. So yes. if you're not a molecular gastronomy chef or a SOM, you can still practice the art and science of flavor pairing combination ingredients to create extraordinary dishes. And we'll be right back. All right. Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market. From papayas and samosas to reishi mushrooms, if it's something that sounds delicious, chances are you'll find the freshest, best version of it at Whole Foods Market. They have more than 400 stores across the country, so if you consider pizza its own food group or just can't imagine when avocado toast wasn't a thing, Whole Foods Market has you covered. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com to find a store near you. Whole Foods Market. Whatever makes you whole. 
And welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with James Brissione of The Flavor Matrix. I need an echo effect for that. The Flavor Matrix, Matrix, Matrix. I had to do it myself. But, you know, I, I, I want to talk about these common ingredients because it is in the subtitle that you are pairing these sim- things that are, that are accessible to everybody. So it's not caviar. It's not white chocolate. Maybe it is in the book. But it's simple things like, you know, corn and cocoa, artichokes. Uh, there are peanuts. There are so many things that are within our supermarkets. So let's start there. Supermarkets. From 15,000 to 44,000 ingredients over the last few decades. That's crazy. It, it is insane. And, and, you know, that was one of the where was one of the places where we started with this was kind of this idea that just our access to ingredients has exploded in the past 20 years. And, and what we have available to us. And, you know, you talk about the, that number, uh, you know, on, of items on supermarket shelves and farmers markets that have gone from, you know, I think like 1,500 to over 8,000 now you know, across the U.S. So our access to ingredients is, is at a point that it's never been before. And, you know, the idea is how the hell do you make sense of all of it? Because <laughs> it's a lot of stuff to process. Yeah, I you, feel terrible going to farmer's markets sometimes because the question you hear most often is, oh, yeah, cool. What do I do with this? <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. And or, you know, because it, it's scary. Like, what do I do with this? Um, so you end up with like the same six ingredients in your basket every single time. And, you know, this is about, uh, you know, what we want to do in the flavor matrix was help kind of empower people to make sense of it all, give them some inspiration to try out a couple new ingredients, a few new spices and, and, you know, kind of vary up their, their every day a little bit. So how do you make sense of the 150 ingredients in the book? Are there categories that kind of separate these into, in, into, into ways that people can, you know, process? Yeah, so we really broke it down into uh, fifty-eight different ingredient groupings um, based on on their kind of on their flavor profiles, you know, genetic similarities. So we look at you know citrus all as, as one group because in general the flavor of citrus is constructed all the same way. Um, you know, there are some slight there are little variations that distinguish a lime from a grapefruit from a lemon, um, but a lot of time you know the biggest difference between most of those is the sugar acid balance. Uh, when we talk about the flavor, there's just slight nuances. So we're able to kind of look at those as, as a whole group. And then I think it also, you know, again, empowers you with a little more flexibility, a little more choice to pick, you know, which type of citrus. You say, okay, citrus is a good pairing with these ingredients. Now, do I want to go grapefruit? Do I want to go lime? Do I want to go orange? What do I want to use here? But those are ingredients, not flavors. But those, those are ingredients, right? So, and so we have our ingredients grouped, you know, um, into these 58 categories, some some are singular, like Jerusalem artichokes is its own unique category. There's really nothing else like it. Citrus is a whole group. Um, and then what we did is we took that idea of the aroma wheel that you would find for coffee or beer or wine, and we applied it to food. So we actually were able to break down all of these ingredients over that same aroma profile. And through some data, uh, based on <laughs> some. some data, <laughs> through a lot of data, uh, we're able to actually to calculate pairing scores for each ingredient. So we would, you know, take citrus as as the chapter category that we are working on. We could go and you know and pull the information, the data on mushrooms, and do a calculation to find out how many compounds citrus and mushrooms have in common. And then we take the same one to cranberries, and then to blueberries, and then to every you know other common ingredient that makes for a good pairing. Uh, we would 
create those, do those calculations, generate this data set, and then send it off um, to uh, our data visualization specialist who cre actually created the matrix and kind of put the whole thing together for us. It is wonderful, and it is dense in the in the best of ways. In that, I usually read a book from cover to cover before having a guest on, and this stopped me so many times because I actually wanted to act on it too. Not just because it was so rich with information, but when you open up and see mollusks, and I'm a huge fan of oysters, I know that there's a spectrum of flavors that are grown all around the world, but then I've never loved you know a little lemon or a little mignonette. I understand it there are so many other things to do with it. And that was the limitation of what I knew for oysters. Yeah. And uh, you know, so often there's a couple of things there to react to. First of all, that you just downplayed mignonette. Yeah. And missed Mr. Vinegar. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, it's, you're, it's, and you're going, and I you're speaking one out against mignonette. One fault. Um, okay. We can get into that <laughs> <Yeah>. later now, <laughs> but no, so this is, you know, this is the trap that I think we all fall into um, is, those are the things you know. Those are the things you've seen before with oysters. Those are the things you're comfortable with with oysters. And like, where do the new ideas come from? Uh, you know, apart from just reading book after book after book to find out, you know, I mean, when I was a young cook, this is what I would do. I'd pull every book I had off the shelf, go to the index and find oysters in every cookbook I had and just look to see, well, what is this person doing with oysters? What is this person doing? What, you know, what ingredients that people who are smarter than me, they know go well. You know, now we're able to take it down to the data and say, based on the flavor, the actual flavor of an oyster, how it's constructed, here are the things that go well with it. I mean, I love that you have a best pairings and it's mushrooms, grains, nuts, breadcrumbs, cream, butter, beet, asparagus, but then you have this surprising pairings. And that is usually one of those things where it's like, it's surprising because I didn't think it was going to work, but you already know empirically that it will. Yes, we do. So, uh, and you know, this is always what I, you know, what I love to say. I think like one of the great surprise pairings in the book is is uh, strawberries and mushrooms. It works. That doesn't mean that you know you can chop up a bowl of fresh mushrooms or chop up a bowl of fresh strawberries, shave some mushrooms over the top, and it's going to be delicious. You know, it still requires a little bit of craft, a little bit of effort, kind of finding the right way to combine those ingredients uh, to to make it work. But there are things, there are these things there that tie those two ingredients together and allow them to be delicious together when it doesn't seem like they should be. What are some of the more surprising flavor combinations that you... I mean, you've seen it all. You used to cook at Highlands and Birmingham at Danielle. You've been at Ice for so many years. But what surprises you now? Um, I mean, I, it, it's still... I think that, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that came out of the book. And, you know, in, in two really, really dense years of, of writing this book, <clears throat> I haven't even had a chance to kind of put them all, you know, put them all into practice yet. Um, I think you know two of my favorite things are how great of a seasoning and how powerful of a seasoning cocoa and coffee can be. And I think it's something you know you see a little bit of and you think about, oh yeah, okay, you could put that on you could put that on beef, you know, as part of a rub or something like that. Um, but for you know for anytime you want to create a roasted flavor uh, without a lot of heavy roasting, those are your go tos right there. Um, they actually cocoa and avocado is a phenomenal pairing. You know, and we see that in like some smoothies and, and stuff, but, uh, you know, to like bring it back onto the savory side of bitter cocoa, um, horseradish and blueberries, corn and coconut, one you just corn just and coconut. Yeah, there. I was I was very surprised about that because at first I thought you were just playing off uh, alphabet or alliterations, <laughs> but 
Why? Why is corn and coconut? So corn has this incredibly complex flavor, and you know we, we wouldn't think of it really, but the the flavor of corn is constructed by over five hundred different aromatic compounds. So that really kind of gives it this very wide base and allows it to match with a lot of, of different ingredients. Um, uh, fruity aromas are, are actually really big in corn, even though we don't really perceive them, uh, but they're really prominent. And so, you know, we, we're obviously dealing with big fruity tropical aromas in the coconut. And that's really where those two line up. And we're talking about corn. Are we talking about fresh, dried, nixtamalized? I mean, there's that much more just to the term corn. See, that's, that's the beauty of it. Um, you know, is, is to look and, and that's one of those things I really learned to do when cooking with Watson was to say, okay, so the ingredient is corn, but what does that mean? Is it grits? Is it, you know, is it polenta? Are we talking about cornmeal? Are we talking about fresh corn? Uh, you know, or is it a, is it a batter? You know, how are we going to utilize this corn? How are we going to implement it into a recipe? And, and that's, uh, you know, something we try to stress in the book is that, you know, ingredients can be so many, you know, even a singular ingredient can still be so many different things. You were the first two-time champion on Chopped. Yes. Did you do this research before or after? <laughs> it was well after. I, you know, 10 years ago, Chopped is 10 years, over wow. 10 years old. Yeah. Um, I was doing the pilots for Chopped. I mean, it's it's really kind of crazy. I was back on season one and then I won the first champions tournament at the end of season two. Yeah. Uh, I've been back recently as a judge, which is a heck of a lot more fun than uh you know i was, was joking with the with the guys i was you know judging with i was like man i actually slept last night <laughs> i was like you know before when i had to come when i had to come to the studio to cook like there was no sleep the night before but maybe there was something cognitive i mean i, I feel like you did do something you broke the code like that guy what's his name um Paul Michael Larson on Press Your Luck. You know, the no whammy, no whammy stop. And he figured out that there was some kind of system to winning that. And you figured out that there was some kind of system to matching that, yeah. to pairing that. I mean, it, it, it's a puzzle. It, it is a puzzle. Ultimately, there's, there's pieces and there's a way to fit them together. Um, and I, that's, it's kind of the challenge that I've always enjoyed. And so, you know, I've, I somehow was very fortunate to always find myself in these spots of, you know, working on the pilot of Chopped, getting involved with Chef Watson, you know, all kind of led me to, to trying to kind of, I guess, sort of explain the weird way my brain works, you know, through science to, to everybody in this book. I feel like you should consult for Chopped in the way that uh, you should be giving those three ingredients that people will initially look and be like i i don't know how but you're like well, actually there is science behind all this maybe they do it that way but i i feel like you should reapproach them and say you know those three things i can tell you three things that should go together and we'll see if they get you there. know what i'm i'm going uh i'm gonna see ted later tonight <laughs> so i'm gonna I'm, I'm i'm gonna mention that to him yeah uh we'll be the 92nd street y tonight to actually talking about the flavor matrix and signing books afterwards so if anybody's listening live Come on out, 92nd Street Y tonight, and come see us. I hope they are. And if not, go out and get the flavor metrics. And, well, you know, it, it, either way, get the flavor matrix. Yeah, either way, <laughs> get the flavor matrix. And it is such an amazing and dense, and, and this is going to be one of those books that is archived on the shelf for years and years to come. And you're going to be that weird cookbook that chefs pick up and be like, what did somebody do that was weird with this? I hope so. Yeah. I hope so. I, I, I want to live on everybody's shelf. That's, where, that's exactly where we want to be. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you so much, All James. Right. You've been listening to the Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network. Org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkell. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. A big thank you to Whole Foods for sponsoring Music by Cookies and David Tatashore for engineering. 
Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.